Welcome to the Wake and Wave podcast. My name is Genevieve. Glenn and I have been journeying from California to Argentina since June of 2021. We decided early we'd enter Mexico that same summer, but life would have it different. And after visiting 12 states, we finally entered Mexico in January of 22. After spending a month visiting the state of Baja California all the way to its southern tip, we were to return to the northern border of Mexico to collect the visa we forgot to pick up upon entry in Tijuana. For more details on this, watch our entrance video on Facebook or Instagram. In mid-February, we arrived in El Tuito, where we had pinpointed a bird sanctuary for our overnight stay. Rancho Primavera was exactly what we needed after days of driving from Mexicali at the northern border. Nature and safety. We met the sanctuary's owner, Bonnie. She was outgoing and easy, giving us the freedom to settle anywhere on her land and visit it as we pleased. We wanted to know more about this woman who seemed to live in perfect synergy with the animals around her, browsing her ranch on her horse, car or on foot to ensure all was taken care of as needed. We asked Bonnie if she would sit with us for an interview. She agreed to talk to us about the sanctuary. Enjoy listening. Bonnie, thank you so much for letting us sit in your veranda, which is beautiful, by the way. Thank you. And also for agreeing to tell us your story, to tell us one of your stories. The bird sanctuary is really what's been your life for many years now, for yep. quite a number of years. My mother, she started the whole thing. Back in 1996, she was living on her sailboat in the Florida Keys. And then she came to me and she said, I'm ready to have some land. Want some land with some fruit trees and maybe a few horses, because she used to always have horses and she loved growing food. And she said, let's go up the mountain from Puerto Vallarta, because I really like that place. Because when I was a teenager back in the late 60s, early 70s, we used to come to Puerto Vallarta a lot, rent a house right next to Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> and, um, and so we were familiar because this Highway 200 had just opened up. It was only a couple of years old. So we were familiar with this area. <clears throat> she particularly, I was a teenager, so I don't remember that well, but she said, I want to go up there and look. So we came up with my three daughters, my husband, my mom, and I, and we looked for many days. And one day, my children who are blonde, but bilingual, they're 50% Mexican, 50% American, <clears throat> went to buy some candy at the candy shop. And the man said, what are you gringas doing here that can speak Spanish? What are you doing here? Because Tuito was very small in 96. <clears throat> he said, oh, my mother and father and grandmother, they're looking for a ranch to buy. This man knew of this place. So your kids found your ranch. They found <laughs> That's it. So it's not such a bad thing that kids want to go buy candy. So we came and we saw it. At that time, there was 300 mango trees. Now there's only about 80 left, but there was 300 back then. And we said, this is just incredible. It was in ruins, but we could see that it had lots of potential. And my mom said, yeah, but we can't afford a property this big. Let me call my brothers, you know, your brothers. And they all said, yes, 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 we'll go in with you. So we bought it as a family compound. So we spent many, many summers, the brothers and the sisters and, the, and all the, the nieces and the nephews. We have horses and, and lots of animals, a swimming pool. They all had motorcycles. And of course, this beach, that was half an hour. These other really nice beaches are an hour away. So it was a great place to spend the summer family compound. And we had thought that the mangoes would give us an income. We had to have a full-time caretaker here that we thought the mangoes would give us an income to pay the caretaker. Well, 
that didn't turn out. The mango trees, there are three different varieties and they turned out not to be commercial. But my mother, who is a very avid bird watcher and has done many bird watching trips, she said, I'm going to bring the Audubon Society here to see what they think of this place as a bird place. And sure enough, they were here for like a week and they said, you have a hot spot. There are so many birds because this is what they call an ecotone. You notice we have bananas and papayas and mangoes, but we also have oak and pine, but we also have nopal and maguey. So is it desert? Is it mountains? Is it tropical? Well, it's an ecotone. It's where that they all mix. And so <clears throat> that's why it has been observed here over 300 species of different birds. That was the start. So my mom and I, we started doing birding tours. We would do the cooking and the serving and everything. And it was really wonderful. And slowly we got known and some companies, very, very well-known big companies like Victor Manuel Nature Tours, they started bringing groups here. And so we became known. And then also <clears throat> we built three little rental houses. So we have people that want to come on their own to go birding. They rent a house that has a kitchen. They spend sometimes a couple of days, sometimes a whole month and they, they can bird here. We also have companies in Vallarta that do day tours mm -hmm. and they take and, and bring people up here to, to, to see the birds and so on. <clears throat> How many kind of birds have you counted? So I'm not that good of a bird watcher. I probably have seen on the property, maybe 80, but the ones that are really good bird watchers, they come and they have, they list on what's called eBird. It's a citizen science app that it's out of Cornell, Sapsucker Woods, which is the biggest bird laboratory in the world. And Sapsucker Woods has what's called eBird. So people come and they report what they've seen mm. and where they've seen it. So they write, they open up eBird and they said, oh, Rancho Primavera, I saw this bird, this bird, this bird, this bird, this bird. And so that after years and years and years, the list right now that's on there on eBird through Cornell, it's over 300 true that have been confirmed that there's pictures or something to prove it. It's about 300, wow. but that's not all at once. Cause some, some of those are residents and we'll have those during this summer, so but then in the winter we get a lot of migrants. So the number goes up and that's when most people come birdie because you get the migrants and the residents. Um, some people that are interested in the residents come more during the breeding season, which is May, April, May, June. By that time, <clears throat> the birds are very visible because they're in breeding plumage and they're out in the open calling for mates. And, um, and it's really nice because we have 22 endemics on the property alone. So most people that come here that have not birded this part of the world, they get what's called a lifer, a species of bird that they see for the first time. So people keep a list of birds. Like I've seen this bird, this bird, this bird. Oh, look, it's a lifer. I've never seen the Mexican hermit, which is a hummingbird that we have here very regularly. Or some of them, you know, the blue mockingbird. We have a lot that I see every day. But for the people that have never been to this part of the world, they've never seen that bird. So this rancho started out of your mom's passion? Completely my mom. Her passion was first to have a place for her to live. And then when she realized that, and it was too big, she brought my brothers on board. And then she realized that we needed to have some kind of income. And that's when she turned it into a bird sanctuary. And um, we've gotten very involved with the conservation of the military macaw which is not an endemic animal, but it's a very emblematic bird. So we have founded a, um, an NGO, which is called Macaws Forever. And then through there, the lady that also takes captured birds that need to be released. And so we have a program of rehabilitating captured birds and releasing them. 
what does it mean? Can you lead us through the rehabilitation of okay. some of these birds that you had? I mean, basically the first ones that came here, actually, they were the ones that had been poached and they were still very young birds. And the government's the one that brought them to me because the government said, we know that you're a bird conservatory and you want to take care of the wild animals and so on. Here's these birds. And at first we're like, I don't know what to do, but if, you know, with a friend of a friend that has a vet and then, then, you know, everybody was telling you, you have to do this and this and that. <clears throat> so all of those birds were released. And since they were very young birds, learning to fly was no problem because they had never been, they had only been captive for, you know, maybe weeks or months. And then I put them in a big aviary and they learned to fly at the right time. At the, you know, it's like a baby has to crawl at a certain time. Well, birds need to learn to fly at a certain time. So they all learned to fly. And since we have many, many wild macaws flying over every day, they eventually go back, they join the wild flocks and they go back to the wild. These ones aren't so easy, these new ones that I have, because some of them have been in cages for 12 years and they do not know they can fly. Like right now I have one that's flying loose around. He finally figured out he could fly, <clears throat> but his partner doesn't know that she can fly. And so we put her out and she just squawks and squawks like, you know, don't go, don't leave. Well, open up your wings and fly. And uh, so sometimes you have to you know, put them on a stick and then force them to fly, but she still won't fly even that. She just goes to the ground. So sometimes it's a matter of time. I've had some, some specialists come and help me with it. And they said, sometimes it takes up to three years because because to their brain, they really think they can't fly. You say, how can a bird not fly? But here they fly kilometers and kilometers, but they have to be convinced. Uh, the first two that she brought, they were released and they weren't a pair. They came from two separate places, but once they released, they were flying around and they fell in love and they were just so happy and they flew around. And then one day they disappeared. I'm like, oh my goodness. So I, we have a scientist that we work with. He's a macaw specialist. And I asked him, I said, you know, these birds, they've disappeared overnight. He says, what's September? September is when they go to look for a nesting site. So I didn't see them for like a month. And I said, oh, something happened to them. No, they started coming back. So they come back now and they visit the other birds and then they go on with the flock. I mean, they don't stay because they now become wild birds. Wow. And it's very rewarding to see that. So macaws do live in flocks. They live in relatively small flocks. They're not huge flocks. They pair for life. Okay. They, they have a mate and they pair for life. Uh, they don't start reproducing until they're like, you know, like six, seven years old, but they will pair as they're only a year old. And they will accept new members, uh, so the ones that the you release can, can find. Can join the flock, yes. Flock. Yes, really. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, so, and then the thing that we founded, the Macaws Fair that was founded 20 years ago now, they started what's called the Macaws Sanctuary, and I'm not really involved with them anymore because they're doing a wonderful job. And what they do is they're putting artificial nests because the birds are very big birds and they need big trees. But what do us humans like? We like wood. And so many of the big trees have been cut down for wood and there isn't enough nesting sites. So here with the study of the different scientists, they've been putting nesting boxes. They have up right now 27 nesting boxes. Most of them are occupied by breeding pairs. So the population is finally getting reestablished. Um, it's a sensitive thing because being in a box, it's artificial. There's always fright that they could develop some kind of infection because it's not exactly a natural environment, but the, it's a large area and they have these boxes, you know. They're, and that's they're, all they have for now. 
<clears throat> they have that. Well, some of the boxes got occupied by owls and some got occupied by other birds. So, I mean, but that's nature. Right. Here's a hole in the, in the tree, you know, whoever comes first gets it. And then sometimes there are predators to the baby, baby macaws. The worst predator to the baby macaws are humans. Because here in Mexico, they love to poach them. But unfortunately, most of them, they found out, get shipped to China. The Chinese don't have any trouble with having a captive bird. But it's all secret. And here in Mexico, for hundreds of years, it was a tradition to have birds in a cage. Is, is, is it changing? Very much so. I mean, this has been part of our mission is to educate people that birds that are born in captivity, that's one thing. The bird, you didn't take it from the environment and it was born in captivity. You produced it like a pet dog or pet horse or anything. I mean, that's, that's okay because that's not a wild animal. But the ones that are poached because they were not bred in captivity, that's stealing from the environment. That's stealing from Mother Nature. The issue that I have with birds in captivity, even born, it's how it tends to perpetuate the desire to have a beautiful bird in captivity. And you also want one. And genuinely, people fall in love with the animal, with the, the species. But then you want to have a, a bigger one, a, a one that is more one. Yeah. I, I think it does. Yeah, it definitely. Yeah. But little by little, I mean, we've not myself personally, but the team that I work with, they go into the schools and they talk about it and they say, you know, hey, what is happening to these birds? One lady, she produced a beautiful, beautiful little story about a bird that, you know, was captive and then escaped and then had its family. And so that the children can relate to that, that, hey, this is cruel to remove the bird from, from the wild. And I just tell people, you have to understand, if, if you continue to capture the wild birds, you soon will not have any macaws. I mean, when we arrived here, the number of macaws was quite small, but now the flock flying over sometimes is 20 strong. So, I mean, the population is slowly, but very slowly recovering because they don't reproduce fast. Only one pair, there may be three eggs, but usually only one chick will survive that season. And then sometimes it'll be two years later until they produce another clutch of eggs. So it's, they're slow reproducers and that's why they're in danger of extinction. But little by little, it's, it's changing. This, this macaw that we have here is called the military macaw and this. A, a population here, there's a population in Estero Nuevo León, there's a population in Oaxaca. And then there's some that they still call military macaws in South America. So it's not endemic to Mexico. Okay. But we don't know if the South American ones would breed with the Mexican ones because they're geographically separate. But they're right now classified as the same species. So it's not like it's going to become extinct tomorrow, but it is on the endangered list. Did your love for birds develop as you developed the sanctuary with your mom? Yes, yeah. My mom always had a love of, love for birds. She's she's always been passionate about birds. And, um, you know, I like seeing them, but I was never one to <clears throat> grab the binoculars and go on, you know, a long trip just to look at birds. And to this day, I enjoy watching bird behavior and seeing what they're doing. But exactly naming the bird to me isn't that important. But to most birders, that's very important. To see a bird, identify it, what is it, what's its name. And so on. I just like to watch what they do, you know, like behavior. Bird behavior to me is fascinating. But I like everything. I mean, as a sanctuary, we have a large population of reptiles. And in fact, quite a few people come and study the reptiles. We have a lot of beaded lizards. This peninsula that you're on right now is called Cabo Corrientes. And it's like fourth in the world of number of reptiles. My husband just ran into the other day a, a rattlesnake. But I've seen mostly the liar snake, the cat-eyed snake, the boa constrictor. We have a lot of insects. We've had several people come. I did have one man that was an arachnid 
specialist, and he identified a new species of jumping spider. I didn't even know they were called jumping spiders, but now I notice them all the time and they jump. And he found one. He says, oh, this one's never been identified. I mean, this peninsula is large and there's a lot to explore here, hopefully before it gets too destroyed. Right now, the biggest issue is illegal logging. We have people that do a lot of illegal logging since it's so isolated and we have tropical trees here, the wood's very valuable. You know, at the nighttime, you can sometimes hear the big trucks carrying illegal logging, but the government doesn't have enough power to control it. Mexico is such a vast country and their legal system isn't very strong. So there's that illegal logging. There is population growth and everybody thinks that they need to slash and burn and put cattle. When we came and we said, no, we're not going to have cattle. They said, well, how are you going to survive? That's their mentality. He says, my father was a farmer and he grew cattle and he milked his cows and made cheese and that's how we lived. I says, well, there's other things to do besides making cheese. And people have realized that, that yes, ecotourism can help. I mean, Mexico doesn't have the mentality that Costa Rica has. Costa Rica understands that ecotourism is their bed and butter, but Mexico doesn't understand that. And Cabo Corrientes, this whole peninsula, the government tried to make it a, a, a government reserve, a reserve, you know, it, but there was just so much resistance because the people that have land here said, but then you're not going to let me, you know, destroy the, the habitat. And so I don't know what the stash it is. And our current president is not very pro ecology, but people said, you know, I saw that it was going to all become a reserve and people would still own their land and they could still do what they have did, but they couldn't do further destruction, but it hasn't taken off. So. But people here have learned because people say, you know, oh, it's, your ranch is so beautiful. And I know it used to be just a, you know, a cattle ranch. It didn't used to be anything here. And I says, well, you plant trees and you, you know, conserve the soil and, and you let, you know, the cut grass go back down into the soil. So the soil gets richer. Well, I've had people like, like our mechanics said, oh, I want to have a bird feeder like that. That's so neat. You have hummingbirds coming to your house. And I says, here, here's a bird feeder. Make sure you keep it clean, put, you know, sugar water. People have learned. I mean, that they know now that ecotourism can be a good thing. And whenever my birders come, I always say, go into town, spend money, buy your lunch, buy your dinner, but wear your binoculars so they know that you're a birder. Because when we first started, the locals will say, your guests are weird. They have binoculars, <laughs> but they don't have a, a, a shotgun. You know, what are they doing with binoculars if they don't have a shotgun? And I says, no, 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 they don't kill the birds. They find them and they identify them. They put have like the funniest look on their face. But now they understand, they understand that, hey, these are really good people. They don't destroy our environment. They make it richer. And they also bring us income because people need to have an income. Fact of life. You can't say, oh, you can't do that. And you say, no, no, give them an alternative. The alternative is have the tourism come. And, the, and there are a huge number of bird watchers worldwide. I mean, it's a really up and coming hobby. So how did the sanctuary become known? Just word of mouth. I, what's helped us the most lately has been eBirds. There's people now use technology and they go on eBirds and they think, oh, look, here's a hot spot, Rancho Primavera. There's 300 species there. And so a lot of people do contact me. They says, oh, I just want to come and bird for the day. I don't have time to spend the night. And I says, day birders are welcome. There's no entrance fee. I have my donation box for anybody that wants to help with conservation because we're all about conservation and most people are really happy to say, yeah, I mean, that's wonderful you want to conserve. And they're always very pleased when they find out that, no, I, I, we're not an institution like botanical gardens or something like that, which does have to have an entrance fee. You know, this is basically 
an area where we're trying to keep as many native species of plants growing and, and just maintaining the land. We've planted like 8,000 trees. Wow. 8,000, yeah. It's a Over lot. Over how many years? 26. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. And so obviously that number, they don't all survive. We did plant some too close. We've had to learn that, okay, don't plant that big tree close to the foundation of a building. So you started the day tools and are you the guide? No, I don't do any guiding. Okay. Guides bring, um, there's several private companies that they come up here mm -hmm. and they, you know, and the people sometimes they need to use the restroom. Sure, you go use the restrooms and, and what have you, but it's just the birds and they know that it's the best time is to come early in the morning because I put out the bird food on the feeders to attract the birds to come in. And I usually put that at around eight o'clock. So at eight o'clock you have all these birds, you can see there's a lot of feeders. And so that's the best time to come, but it's right throughout the day. I mean, you can hear that's the golden cheek, which is an endemic. I mean, there's always birds. We have a large bat population. And of course we have butterflies, we have dragonflies. So it's just, I mean, it is buggy here. You do get bitten by bugs if you don't, if you're not prepared because it's nature and it's ever changing. You know, it's, it's people say, oh, but you don't have seasons. I said, we do have seasons. Right now we're in the middle of the dry season. You know, the sky's blue, blue, blue. You don't see any clouds at all. And it's going to get drier and drier. And right now you still see quite a bit of green. Some trees are evergreens, but a lot of them in this forest is called a deciduous semi-tropical forest. And we're in February. So right now the mountain still has greenish and so on, but you're beginning to see some bare trunks and so on. And then by the end of the dry season, which is June, that hill over there is brown. It's not green. You'll see like little green spots here and there. For the ones that are evergreens, the mango trees, which are introduced, are not native here. Those stay green all year round. Um, the bougainvillea, which is not native here, they're green all year round. The avocado trees stay green year round, but most of the local trees, they get all bare branches and they drop their leaves to conserve moisture. So the dry season is very dry here. The rainy season it's is very, very wet. It's not inches of rain, it's feet of rain, six to eight feet of rain in the summertime. It's very humid, but it rarely goes above 30 centigrade or 90 Fahrenheit, <clears throat> but the humidity is very high, very high humidity. In the beginning, it's just thunderstorms. We get big, big thunderheads. And so you get the humidity and you're like, oh, it needs to rain. It needs to rain. For a couple of weeks, you just get the big thunderheads, but you don't get any rain. So that's what it's a little bit uncomfortable. <clears throat> but as soon as it starts raining, the temperature comes down and it's really quite comfortable. Beautiful rainbows we get. So the rainy season is nice because in the mornings, it's almost always sunny. But the thunderheads build up and you know the afternoon you're going to have a nice good thunderstorm. It's going to cool off. Perfect time for reading a book. And then you go afterwards, you go out for a nice walk because it's cooled off and then everything starts getting green. It's like in two weeks, it goes from brown to green. And then it stays and it dries. And then July, we get a little bit more rain. August, we start getting the hurricanes and the hurricanes can bring in tremendous flooding. This last year we had a big hurricane. This year we actually had a lot of winds. <clears throat> so do you get trees. cut off on a regular basis um, from the road? From Not on a regular basis. Road. You do have to cross El Tuito River to get onto the property. And it's only a cement bottom. There's That river does run rear round. If it rains just locally, it's not a problem at all. It's when it rains up in those mountains behind us. You see how tall those mountains are? So that really can collect a lot of water. So we almost always know, <clears throat> oh, there's a big thunderstorm up there. So three hours comes, the river's up, and you can't cross it. But usually it's a matter of four or five hours, and the river's back down, because mm -hmm. we're at 600 meters, so that's a big drop. Right. The only time we get cut off for more than five, six hours is when there is, like, a big hurricane. Like, this hurricane that we had this year, 
it dropped overnight 13 inches, 33 centimeters of water overnight. So yes, that was a lot of water and it couldn't all go fast enough. And it, you know, so it continued to come. Yeah. So for three days, we weren't able to leave the ranch, but that's unusual. That happens maybe once a year and once every third year. So, you know, like it's, it's, but you're prepared, you know, the river's going to go up and then the neighbors actually have, they have contacts with the government and they've put a bridge to their property, but unfortunately the access to the bridge is really poor. So you can walk in and out because it, it gets flooded on the side of the bridge. But the center where the water's coming really fast and strong, you can walk. So you can get in and out of the okay. property, but on foot. All right. Yeah. Can you remember a little story that happened to you here in this ranch with your mom building the sanctuary? Is there anything that comes to mind? A nice memory? or There's plenty of wonderful memories. When we bought the place, there was just so much garbage. And we had a horse trailer because we had bought our horses down from Monterrey. And we would fill up the horse trailer with garbage. I mean, old hot water heaters. And just It was just amazing the amount of garbage there was. One after another after another. It was like, okay, we got rid of the garbage. No, and then we start digging. Like here where we put these stairs going down here. We started digging to put those stairs in. And these old, old antique bottles started coming up. And then we also got some shards and things I don't have anything left because my mom had an anthropologist friend and she gave it all. So <clears throat> there were shards, there were like grinding stones, a lot of pottery, like these ancient bottles. I mean, I don't know how, where they came from, you know, like from the 1800s. So there was a lot of really interesting things that as we dug came up. We haven't gotten anything new anymore. Um, we haven't seen any petroglyphs. Um, there is, and I think it's still down. I don't know what happened to it. A stone that was carved like in the sort of a chair. And those people said, yeah, yeah, that's what they would do. They would take it and you could actually sit on it on the ground, but you gave you a little bit of a back support. So there, there was interesting things that have come up, but lately we haven't seen anything more. But in the beginning, yeah, things came up, especially when we bought this place, the house was here. This house is 50 years old, but that whole circular driveway where the fountain is, that's where a lot of pieces came out from as they dug that. There was one of the pieces and, and, um, but my mom is the type of person that, you know, I'm not going to hold on to something if someone else can find more value in it. And so this archaeologist, she, she was really, really, really excited about these pieces. I mean, she had much more knowledge than we did and I don't know, but we've never seen any petroglyphs here on the property. If we go down a very close drive, 15 minutes from here, there's quite a few petroglyphs, but here on the property, we haven't seen anything. Um, I think probably the, the, one of the funniest stories that when we first bought the property, the house was here and it was wired because the original owners who built the house, let's say 50 years ago, they had a power plant, a diesel power plant to power the house. So the house was wired and it actually still had light bulbs. There was just plain light bulbs because there was no furniture and everything was gone and there was plain light bulbs. And we had this big electrical storm. We, we have massive electrical storms. The lightning storms are fabulous. And so it's nighttime and it's flashing lightning and, you know, it's like really funny. And all of a sudden the lights start flickering on and off, on and off. And my mom and I look at each other like, what's going on, you know? But it was just so much electrical energy in the air that that electricity was getting into the, the wiring of the house and turning the lights on and off. And she said, you know what? Keep your feet off the ground. It's just a cement floor. And if that's getting into the wiring, so that was like a spooky night. And then I think another year after that, by then we had electricity, but we were having another electrical storm and we just had this 
buffet built, which is cement. And I decided to clean it in the middle of electrical storm. My mom was smart. She was sitting back in her bedroom, reading her book with her feet up. So I've got a damp rag and I'm cleaning the cement and lightning strikes right over there. And all she knows is she hears the lightning strike and she hears me scream. The lightning came through the ground, through my arm, and then back out to my, where I was sitting on the floor. So it, I kind of, you know, burnt my arm a little bit. Yeah, I felt it really bad. My arm hurt for several days. But she says, what are you thinking? We're having an electric storm. You know how much electricity, you know, these lightning bolts are huge. Because the lightning is really powerful. powerful. The horses, they seem to know, but all the horses are barefoot. But they instinctively go down to a unique area. When the lightning storms, they all go down like they know to get away. And they don't stand out in, right. in the big hill. I mean, we've had a couple of trees struck by lightning and they just split in half. So we have, we have a very dry, dry season and a very wet, wet season. Okay. Can you tell us how many people you can host here and what you okay. so, offer? Yeah, we have two different types of accommodations. Over there, we have those beautiful ponds. I have three rental houses. They're all just only one bedroom, but they have a full kitchen and have beautiful views. And that's for people to rent. They're completely self-sufficient. I don't provide anything except for the house, which has electricity, water. Of course, we have our own well, so we have really good water. And so the people are self-sufficient. Over in this part, not where the ponds are, but up on the beautiful hill with a beautiful view, we have five different bedrooms, all with their own bath. And when people come as a group, then since they don't have access to the kitchen, I provide them with breakfast. Okay. So they can come either as a birding tour or as a photography tour. And breakfast tour. is right here in this <clears throat> right here. veranda with an amazing view on the forest. I set up a buffet and people have what to choose from and then they get ranch fresh eggs. They say, how oh, do you want your eggs? And I pick some of the eggs and they're fried from the, all those chickens that are running around down there, keeping the insects under control. Those are my insect control people. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's really amazing. And so this is totally fit for some workshop also. Yeah. Some workshops that were just starting. We've had a photographer workshop. So a photographer, a local photographer brought a bunch of people. And they just went around and he said, okay, you're going to practice focusing on this or practice taking this kind of picture. One of his classes were about moving water. And that time of year he was here, we didn't have anything. We didn't have any of the streams running. Like this one here is a very slow stream. So not too far from here, another property that does have water that's going over rock. So he was delighted with that. He said, okay, everyone find a place to sit and you're going to just take pictures of the water falling over the rocks. So that was it. And we had one workshop that a man came for butterflies. Um, but he's now passed, so he doesn't bring any more people. Some people have come to do sketching workshops. So the people want to come, you know, practice sketching nature of some sort. I mean, here, everything is nature. Some people say, no, I want to do a bird, but the birds don't stay. So people usually take photography and then sketch the bird that they photographed. Or some people want to just do plants. Um, I want to do a banana tree. And so they go and they find a banana tree and they paint the banana tree. So like right now, that these are blossoms. You see all these blossoms. So I want the mango tree in blossom. And so they do that. But it's always very small, no big groups. Okay. Because it's five bedrooms with five baths, limited size. And specially oriented for birders. Yeah, okay. specially oriented for birders, but they can be other activities. I mean, I have actually one of the ladies that came and stayed with it. She's um, a very renowned poet. And she said that she sometimes does workshops. And she said that this would be a good place to do a, a workshop for creative writing. I mean, it's a very inspirational place to do things. <laughs> it's amazing. Thank you so much, Bonnie. 
Thank you for Thank you sharing so with us. Thank you, Thank you for, for coming. Taking the time to show us around and telling us about the ranch. Well, it, it's a, it's a real jewel and, and, it I, is. and I love to be able to share it. I mean, it, I don't want to be selfish and say, oh no, this is only for me. And how happy I am that you share it with others. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Following the interview, we left Bonnie and her rancho with an even greater appreciation for our work promoting nature conservation, but also communication and a better understanding between locals and nature-oriented visitors. We hit the road for our next stop, Barra de Navidad, Jalisco, on the Pacific coast of Mexico. You can follow our journey through the Americas on all our medias, Instagram, Facebook, Polysteps, YouTube, and our website, of course, wakingwave.com. To support us, find our Waking Wave campaigns on GoFundMe and Patreon or reach for the link to our PayPal tip jar in the description links. Our podcast episodes are available on all major platforms. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and we wish you a wonderful awakening. <laughs>